stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is multimedia performance artist Miranda July. Her performances, videos, and web-based projects have been presented at the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim, and two Whitney Biennials. Miranda July is also the writer, director, and star of two feature films, The Future and You, Me, and Everyone We Know, which won a special jury prize at Sundance and four prizes at Cannes. Miranda July is also a writer of fiction. Her stories have appeared in the Paris Review, Harper's, and The New Yorker, and her 2007 debut collection, No One Belongs Here More Than You, won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and has been published in 26 countries. In 2009, she designed 11 Heavy Things, an interactive sculpture garden for the Venice Biennial. In 2011, she wrote the nonfiction book It Chooses You for McSweeney's, in 2013, 100,000 people from 170 countries subscribed to her email-based art project, We Think Alone. And to show us once and for all that she can do anything she puts her mind to, Miranda July is here on Between the Covers to talk about her debut novel, The First Bad Man. Welcome to Between the Covers, Miranda July. Hi. Hi. L- let's start with the novel as a form. I'm, if I'm imagining that I'm you... I'm thinking part of the attraction is I haven't done a novel before. So how was doing a novel different than your imagining of doing a novel? Yes, that that was the attraction. I wish it was it was something deeper, more profound. Um, but a dare is pretty much like the level I operate at. I think in a way I thought it would be like the hardest thing I'd ever done. But because that's what everyone says and people are always not finishing their novels and things like that. But but none of those people have made a movie. Mm. <laughs> and so I think actually um, it, it, it's hard, but it's a certain kind of hard that's very comfortable to me. It's, it's all on me. It's all sort of this internal private process. Um, and the hardness of of making a movie is, is much more fundamentally uncomfortable to me. Um, you know, you're hiring, you're firing, you're accidentally losing other people's money, you know. Um, and so that was a surprise. I was like, oh, you know, theoretically, <laughs> this could be something that I did. If, if I was the kind of person who did just one thing, this seems like something I'm suited to. However, I'm not. I, I definitely don't want to write a novel again as my next thing. But yeah, my, my husband commented like, oh, you seemed pretty happy during those three huh. years. Yeah. Well, when I was reading about 
the time when you lived here in Portland and you were developing your performance art, that you really tried to shy away from internships, that you wanted to keep this idea of how to do it right away from you as you figured it out for yourself. Was that also true now, decades later, with writing the novel, that you wanted to, to um, grope your way through writing a novel on your own terms? Or did you seek out uh, people as editors and readers like you might with a, a film project? Right. I feel like at this point, um, while I'm still that same kind of person who doesn't like look at a book and think, well, I want to do something like that, like just out of my own weird uh, DIY pride, I, I come at it thinking like, well, luckily I'm the first person to ever write a novel. So it's just wide open, you know, <laughs> like this. Obviously, I know that's not true. And I'm a massive reader. But I, I, I do kind of isolate my brain a little. And yeah, I have a really high tolerance for notes and feedback at this point, because that's such an integral and unavoidable part of making movies. So, um, so I relied a lot on, on friends and feedback and, um, uh, yeah, some friends read many, many drafts and, uh, that was invaluable. And then did you start with a conception of the type of novel you wanted to write or were you, someone who started with an image or a scene or or an emotion and then built your way forward? Right. Well, I did actually start with an idea, um, it, which I sold to Scribner and wrote about, you know, 60 pages of. Then I made my movie, my last movie, The Future, and I kind of realized through that process that this idea I'd come up with wasn't gonna work <laughs> it was too personal and um there's nothing like playing your not yourself but playing someone who's your type of person um uh you know I wasn't playing like a working class British woman in my movie I was <laughs> playing someone who you could imagine might be something like me whether or not she was nothing like that to like make it clear all the all the pitfalls of that and I felt really free in the parts of the movie that um, were more surreal or just not so much about me. Um, and this original novel idea was drawn from my true life. So I had then a very clear idea of what I wanted. I wanted the type of story in which I could never play any of the parts um, and that should have some surreal element. I mean, I literally had a list like you might have for your like future life partner, you know, on your dream board or something like he should be self-supporting. He should, you know, <laughs> um, and then I just like waited and, and it did come like all at once. And, uh, the, the whole Cheryl Clee, you know, I say all at once after years. <laughs> um, well, if you were to, let's talk about Cheryl Glickman, the, yeah. the protagonist of the first Batman. If you were to introduce Cheryl Glickman to the list, our listeners or to another person, who is she? What is she about? Um, she's a woman in her, she's 43. She lives alone. She's, she's always lived alone. Maybe has, has she ever had a relationship? Doesn't seem like it. Uh, but, and so she has all those sort of systems that you accrue when you live alone, your, your kind of ways of doing things. And, and she has a lot of pride about that. Like she's not, 
Um, she may seem pathetic to like her coworkers, but she actually has a fair amount of righteousness about like the brilliance of her own methods. Can you talk about Cheryl's system? Like what? <laughs> because she works for a for a self defense nonprofit for women, right? And yet she also seems very defended, essentially, yeah. and and defended in her, as you say, righteous, but also uh, alone, and and her life is takes on a, a sort of Baroque ritual right. quality to it. Right. And I should add, she's not a knowing character. She's not the kind of person who would use the word gender or something, despite the self-defense nonprofit. Like she somehow managed to miss the entire like <laughs> sexual politics, all of that. Um, yeah, her systems, her systems I relate to a lot. It's essentially like the idea of um, keeping the house clean all the time by almost not living in it, um, like having just one set of dishes, you know, so that they can never build up and and ideally like not even using them, just eating out of the pan, <laughs> which I do do when I'm in my <laughs> working at my office. Um, yeah, carpooling is a, is a term I coined um, that maybe will catch on as applied to um, like if you need to bring something to another place in the house, like you're putting back a book or something, that you wait until you have a lot of other things that need to go in the same direction, you know, just for efficiency. So what really rattles Cheryl's world is when she sort of gets cajoled into taking her boss's daughter as a roommate who's a 20-something feral sort of character. Um, what I found found really fascinating about their relationship is I sort of expected, okay, this is going to be an odd couple roommate scenario, but they end up finding love through a very unexpected method of enacting the self-defense videos. And literally you can't, at least for me as a reader, I could not imagine them finding a connection through words. They, they physically wrestle their way to love essentially is it the way it felt to me. I wanted to hear about, that role-playing as a way of connection, the way of sort of approaching a connection obliquely, whether that was somehow a philosophy for you or a methodology for you when you created art. Right. I think I I was unconsciously interested in that, exactly what you're saying, and I remember the point in the book where I wrote the word surrogate, which I eventually took out because it was too knowing of a word for Cheryl. But I realized, oh, this idea of um, of standing in for something else or role-playing as a way of being more honest and more present than you could be if you were, like, quote-unquote, being yourself um, was really powerful. And and if, if I could somehow get at that and have people using that who were not um, – part of like a community of people into playing roles, you know, but who are doing it very much in like a self-invented way and for mundane reasons. I mean, she gets into it as a like cure for a health problem she's having. It's definitely not sexual, I guess, um, (laughs) for her. (laughs) She's not aware of that anyways. We we also didn't mention that Clee is like her physical opposite. She's she's like the kind of blonde, busty bombshell that like stops traffic, uh, which is a weird 
thing to contend with as as another woman as any other kind of woman yeah i know you don't talk like to talk necessarily about uh themes in your Mm -hmm. work i've i've noticed you've said that before in interviews but it does seem like a recurring theme like when i think about the short story mon plaisir where Mm -hmm. uh a couple that is on the rocks sort of finds a way to find themselves as a couple again by by becoming extras in a film and then play acting. And similarly, I would even say like your new app, the Somebody right. app, which is a way, a strange way to use technology to have real people in real time play act your text messages to someone they don't know. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I did especially like once I was done with a novel and working on somebody, I was like, oh, here's a really good example of me being interested in one thing and doing it approaching it in two completely different mediums. Um, Didn't know if anyone would pick up on that. Um, It's often said like, oh, all your work's about connection. And, and that to me feels a little wrong. I'm I'm more interested in the, because that implies like people are really connecting, you know, they're really like knowing each other. And, And I don't, I'm not sure that's even really possible. It certainly doesn't happen in in my work. But what what can sometimes happen is the the strange ways people go about it, you know, by you know playing a role that's that's the opposite of them or something, um, are often so revealing that they have a tenderness to them that is is kind of more present and open than you know, than what we think of as like the proper way to aim for intimacy. And that's so interesting to me that that's like art itself, the, the way that each person comes up with their own very misguided path uh, um, to connection, you know, and then the connection is usually very fleeting. I mean, even in that story, Mon Plaisir, like it seems like their whole romance might be able to restart, but it's really just there, just when they're doing that scene. And and not again, yeah. Do you use uh, role playing or or specific constraints when you're doing your writing? Also, I thought you were going to say like in my sex life or something. <laughs> I was like, wow. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, when writing. Uh, well, you um, could you could say yeah. it while while writing in bed if that... yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I do do. Um, uh, yeah, you know it's interesting. I think. Um, I, it, this, this gets at like this very subtle definition of role playing that I've been trying to figure out how to articulate. It could just be a way of saying, how do you get somewhere without going straight towards something? And I certainly do that in writing. You know, if I know that I need to make a character more, uh, have more pride, if I've, if I've over humiliated them, I don't go straight towards pride and think like, what's what is it about pride? How can I capture that? I, I take a left turn towards something that happens to be interesting to me. And then I find a way to get there through that wrong thing, that wrong thing that nonetheless has a beating heart or else it wouldn't be interesting to me. And okay, that's a stretch that that's role playing. But um, I think in general, we get stuck so often because we think the the right path is the 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 straight one that we're being like really good if we just keep on trying to you know do our work by sitting at our computer and looking at the screen you know like 
um, I, I think there's uh, so, so a sort of tyranny of of um, A to B, <laughs> and and so I think yeah. In this book, I was often trying to show like look like a baby was made in this book, but like how it was made, like it's, it's almost impossible to trace the path. Although that's one of the most fundamental processes. Like there, you can't, there's no other way to make a baby right. really. Ultimately it's right. like this sperm and the egg. But I, I really try to believe in this book that it, it could come about through um, one woman's fantasies really. Well, there's that weird paradox that sometimes fiction feels like it's getting at a deeper truth than nonfiction. And, and the weirdness of us, of assuming the role and, and delivering the lines that maybe aren't your lines in a, in a script that someone else is giving you as being a way to liberate yourself towards yourself sort of points at how our own self narratives are scripts also. Right. Right. And, and basically anything that allows you to be present, um, which a script might do that more because you're like, oh, gosh, here I am. I feel nervous or my heart is beating or whatever, you know, might allow you to be more actually there with everyone than, yeah, than the script that you're always doing. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Miranda July about her debut novel, The First Bad Man. Um, Miranda, let's talk briefly about the main male character in the book and and what he serves in terms of the narrative. So talk about Philip and um, what you see him doing in this, in in The First Bad Man. Yeah, he was such a secondary character for so long. And I I was like, oh, I don't want this guy, this kind of creepy guy in, in there. But he he serves an important purpose all the way through. Um, and gosh, I don't know. I feel like I'm like about to fail a test on my own book. Um, I can, I can speak to something about him that I thought was really crucial to the book. Okay, good. And you tell me if I'm... And then I will repeat that forevermore. Well, tell me if I'm off base, but (laughs) Philip is who Cheryl's A to B script wants to be with, right? So like if she could live her life directly based on her own self-conception, she wants to be with creepy Philip, who is on the phone with her often um, trying to get her permission for him to to have uh, sexual relations with someone who's underage, essentially. Right. But I feel like the thing that really serves the book is it sort of contextualizes that even though all of these things that Cheryl ends up really doing in the book are things she could never have imagined doing, that they're not what Philip's doing. Right. Like it almost right. feels like it gives her the permission to make some leaps. Right. Wait, what do you mean they're not what Philip's doing? Well, that maybe what Philip's doing involves some ethical concerns. Right. And right. hers don't really, hers are unconventional, but right. are not necessarily uh, right. moral questions. Right. It's true. So he sets her in relief in a way that is pretty useful because you get kind of nervous like if she's on his side and he's like pretty alarming you know where is this going to end up and it goes to all these weird places but yeah they're not um they're all they're all allowed and and um and if you can be open to them yeah maybe positive well let's have you read a little bit from from the novel do you have a section in mind 
Yeah, let's see. Um, this is good because speaking of Philip, um, this is early on in the book, and they they really actually don't know each other that that well. Um, they're talking on the phone, and she's just so she's just had a crush on him for so long, and is just like thinks with each phone call, maybe maybe this is the call where he's gonna also confess or going to confess his love. I'm sorry, said Philip. I didn't call when I said I would. I guess I was just scared. Of me? Yes, and also society. Can you hear me? I'm driving. Where are you going? The grocery store, Ralph's. Let me ask you a question. Does age difference matter to you? Would you ever consider a lover who is much older or much younger than you? My teeth started clacking together, too much energy coming up all at once. Philip was 22 years older than me. Is this the confession? It's related to it. Okay, my answer is yes, I would. I held my jaw to quiet my teeth. Would you? You really want to know what I think, Cheryl? Yes, yes. I think... I think everyone who is alive on earth at the same time is fair game. The vast majority of people will be so young or so old that their lifetime won't even overlap with one's own, and those people are out of bounds on so many levels. Right, so if a person happens to be born in the tiny speck of your lifetime, why quibble over, why quibble over mere years? It's almost blasphemous. Although there are some people who barely overlap, I suggested. Maybe those people are out of bounds? You're talking about babies? Well, I don't know, he said pensively. It has to be mutual and physically comfortable for both parties. I think in the case of a baby, if it can somehow be determined that the baby feels the same way, then the relationship could only be sensual or maybe just energetic, but no less romantic and significant. He paused. I know this is controversial, but I think you get what I'm saying. I really do. He was nervous. Men are always sure they'll be accused of some horrific crime after they talk about feelings. We've been listening to Miranda July read from The First Bad Man. Since we're on the, the topic of gender, uh, of course there are men who do multidisciplinary, multi-genre, innovative, avant-garde work. But when I think about a lot of the vital stuff that's going on, and I think of like Sophie Cal or Marina Abramovich or you or Sheila Hetty or Chris Krauss, I'm often thinking of women. And I wanted to pose this question to you of, whether that's just saying something about me and where my focus seems to be, or whether you think this is a particularly vital time for women in the avant-garde. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm with you on that. Of course, I feel like I'm so enmeshed in, you know, like, well, of course, it seemed that way to me, you know, like, Sheila Eddy's one of my best friends. Like, <laughs> all the, you know, and those are the people I'm, like, looking up. And, um, but I will say that, there's a lot more support happening among women in power now. Like we're supporting each other in a way that wasn't happening for me in like 
even through like Riot Girl and all that stuff. Um, and, and for a long time after it, I felt very alone. And um, it's a little bit because of the internet, like, because it's, it's easy to do. Um, but it's funny, I'll notice, like, like with this book, like all these women rushed in like powerful women and like retweeted and tweeted about it and you know seemed really determined like we're gonna help Miranda on this one you know like and I know that feeling so well you know there'll be like some obscure book of poetry and I'll think like okay I may not be lord but I can really help this (laughs) this woman you know right um and and I, I also know a lot of men but actually and they're all they're all nice people. None of them did that. Huh. I was I just thought about that today. Like that's really they just interesting. didn't. And I, I don't think it's um like they're thinking about it. I just think the women know how meaningful it is, hmm. and that it's ha- it's it's not just like a co marketing thing or something. It's like really a political like standing by uh, each other thing because because also everyone's getting a little bit knocked down too (laughs) you know well it feels like the women that i mentioned in the ava who are doing multidisciplinary avant-garde work are also foregrounding the issue of gender so like gender is actually part of what they're examining in their art also so i could see why that would be something that people would want to um right support right yeah it's inherent to the work yeah I wanted to segue to talking about a question I had about gender and how your work is received. Because when I, just in preparing and reading other interviews of you, it's almost invariable that people talk about your, the polarizing nature of your work, that it reminds me of my wife's French and, and the way French people are received in America. Like you're either like super into French culture or you just find it super annoying. Mm -hmm. And similarly, it feels like there's people who are like really strongly in the Miranda July camp. And then there's people who are, for whatever reason, feel really like adamantly uh, irritated by, mm-hmm. by your art. And I wondered if that was a gender double standard. And I, I liked Lauren Groff's piece in the New York Times. I'm, I'm guessing you've mm-hmm. probably read it, where she looked at the, the meaning of the word whimsical and felt like it was dismissive specifically around gender. And that resonated with me. I was wondering, you know, would Michelle Gondry or Wes Anderson have it quite the same way as Miranda July? I know they're they're polarizing also, but maybe not quite in the same way, not as unrelentingly so. And so I, I was curious what your your uh, your take on that is. I mean, sure, those those guys are called twee and whimsical, and you know, even Dev Day get sorry, even Dave Eggers is, you know, um, for all the like hard work he does in the world. But there's this thing of um, annoying that I think is specific to like women in power who aren't playing up their sexuality, you know, or somehow not fitting the exact mold, whether it's just sort of an energetic thing, you know, or, um, or physically. And they're, they're unapologetic about that. That well, it makes like, me have, think of like Lena Dunham. Who, right. Sure. And it and and she changed the landscape quite a bit. I mean, since the last time I had something out, things have changed. And frankly, um, 
it's it's so much for the better, <laughs> you know, like the thing of of uh, diminutizing a woman. You you can't get away with that in the same way anymore. It's not just her. I'm I'm sure it's just you know there's waves of of culture and and. Um, it also it, seems like it is one of the upsides of tech, technology, like what you mentioned, that we can create, or women can create narratives before they get created in, in the larger culture through social media that right. actually end up creating larger narratives. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you can make some, surround something and make it like proclaim it like safe, you know, or hands off or something. Um and can and carry it into the world, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. So I, I have to say, I think it's um, it's shifting a little bit. I I also think the polarizing thing was a story that was picked up by the press, um, and and I I knew it happened because I, for example, with that New York Times, there was a New York Times cover magazine cover about me, and the interviewer was lovely and and. We had a great time together, and then the piece was completely slanted towards, like, she's loved, she's hated, and, and you know, quoted some barely existing blog called, like, I hate Randa July or something, and and I, I remember talking to her later and being like, wow, I, you know, I was sort of surprised that that was the through line, and she said, you know, that was one tiny part of what I wrote, mm. and my editor pointed at that and said, there, that's the story. And <laughs> so it's possible that we think of this as half-half and that really this is a media-generated phenomenon that's self-perpetuating, that I'm participating in un- <laughs> unwittingly. Yeah, I mean, because the truth is, I, I always sort of feel like saying, well, I, I feel pretty lucky. I'm making a living doing exactly what I want. I, you know, I, it, it doesn't seem like people who hate me, you'd have to give them a lot of air time and space and mental space for that to be equal to people who are passionate about something. Because frankly, I mean, you just don't care as much about the things you hate. Sure. Um, and yeah, so I, I kind of think that feels, it feels different to me now. I remember my husband saying, you were right. You said this is going to pass and it seems like it is passing. <laughs> yeah. In in the last several years, you, you became a mother. Motherhood is one of the themes in the first Bad Man. Can right. can you talk about what some of the themes of motherhood you you felt ended up in the book, and maybe how they related to things that came up for you that you hadn't experienced prior to being a mom? The original idea for the book had a baby in it. I hadn't, I didn't have a baby yet, but I thought I probably would have one in the course of the time of writing the book, and so it was like a little gift for myself. Like, I know nothing about babies now, but I assume this is a topic I'll be interested in <laughs> over this time. And and it was true. I was, I mean, I was writing in the hospital. I was like taking little notes, I think partly because my whole life had changed. And the only thing that made it through the divide, it felt like was the book, you know, like, mm. I can at least carry this book into this new land where everything else is just screwed. It, that's how it seemed initially. Uh, and and so I wrote tons of stuff for the book and thought, oh my God, now this book's going to become very, very personal. And 
And and then I moved out of that phase. And ultimately what stayed was a few sentences and kind of the beating heart of like a writer who actually knows what she's talking about Mm -hmm. when, you know, when she writes fiction about motherhood. Yeah, I got farther and farther away from my story and, you know, came back to being Cheryl's. One of the ways that people would categorize your art is as social practice art. And you've you've collaborated with Harold Fletcher, who teaches the art of social art and social practice at Portland State in the past. Could you describe what what that means to you, what social practice art is? I know it's not entirely specific to writing a novel, but as the novel as part of your larger career. Yeah, I mean, I don't, God, Harold could do a really good job of this. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, I often just say I do, I do this whole category of work in a few different mediums that's participatory. um, Because for me, it's uh, social practice often to me is work that is in a community, but is no less fine art. You know, it's like deciding that you could take a a guided walk with a group of people and that would be the piece, you know, that it's it doesn't have to be this picture on the wall. It can be like a living engagement with people and and that that is object enough. Um, I'm sure no one has ever described it that way before. It's <laughs> sort of a blase definition. But um certainly that was something we had in common or we were coming from different you know well I just almost called Harold about nine different names, the name of my son and my husband. And then, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's book tour. Yeah. You. Do you feel like the, the online store that's related mm-hmm. to the novel is a nod towards social practice and, and sort of community engagement? It feels like what happens between Cheryl and Clee is a strange form of social practice art, even though that's not really what they're doing. But the store feels like another way, like another mode that one could approach living in the world of the novel. Yeah, I definitely, you know, have these art ideas that I kind of just slip into the marketing territory because it's it's a way to get something out there and, and test out if it if it'll work. And this idea of a a store as a as a piece of art, um, I'd been thinking about that for a while. And yeah, I love that it's participatory, that it's using like real money and real objects and people can, you know, only one person is ever going to own each object. And it's a kind of intimacy that is not, doesn't relate at all to fiction. Like with fiction, you all read the same book, (laughs) you all own the same book. Um, So the idea that you might, one person might own the cup that's in the book um, is just wrong. Um, And I think I kind of enjoy that the writer part of myself is like aghast, like what? There doesn't need to be the cup. I just need to write the cup, you know, those words. Um, And then I like kind of messing with that and being like, really, why? Why is it so precious? I'm curious, you know, maybe it is precious. Maybe I messed it up. I mean, I enjoy even those fears. Yeah. There's something you said that stood out to me in an interview you had with Rachel Kushner and and Baum. You you said, the whole time I've been building my audience, I've also been trying to unbuild the walls that come with having an audience, with having power. And I wonder if part of the reason why people always say that your work has to do with connection 
is around this dynamic, this I, this um, desire for the person who's receiving the art to not just be receiving, but to be participating. So in a, in a sense, maybe permeability, something around permeability right. is yeah. more apt. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do, on maybe just a psychic level, try and do that with my books and movies too. Like I, you know, I'm believing, <laughs> I'm really thinking about the audience. Um, and I don't, I don't know how it, how it comes through. It probably doesn't. And that's why I end up doing these actual, actually participatory works. I think it, the feeling of being in an audience is, is so uncomfortable to me. I think I associate it with, uh, with listening to my parents, you know, like my parents are sort of monologuers and, <laughs> and that feeling of being kind of trapped and stuck and unseen. And, you know, it's not like it was some form of torture, but, you know, I, everything I do runs the risk of being like that, right? I am asking people to listen. So I think that's why it feels so necessary to me. Like, I don't want to put people in that position where they are supposed to lose sight of themselves and and get lost in my world and then and then feel bereft for for people who are really taken by your work by whether your novel or your performance art or your interactive sculptures um what are some of the people you would point people towards i know like when i was mm -hmm. young and i was you know i'd get an album, I'd read the liner notes and be like, oh, that person, you know, he was studying the guitar of so-and-so. Then right. I would go to the, the next band. Is who, who are some people that you would, either were touchstones for you in formative years or people that you're really jazzed about now that you would direct people towards? Well, I'll go off right now. Um, I'm reading a book, a brand new little book by the playwright, um, and director Richard Maxwell. Um, it's called Theater for Beginners. And it's, it's really, it is that. It's, it's a book for actors, but it's also one of those soon-to-be classic books that you could also just replace actor in every sentence with, with person. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been finding it like strangely moving. It's like pocket size, so I, I keep it in my purse. Um, uh, dovetailing with that I've been using the the meditation app headspace a lot um I don't know if you it's a really it's probably like the most popular meditation app and I would never have thought that that was even um a good idea <laughs> it seems like a very bad idea but in fact it's it's helped me um keep it up in a way that I haven't in this, you know, I've done many different kinds of meditation retreats and it's, it's, it's been profound for me this year. Um, what else? I just finished Ben Lerner's book and, um, I've been wanting to read that myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm now I'm just lugging it around because <laughs> I finished it, but, um, super interesting and his, and his, that's called 1004 and the one before leaving the Atacha station, um, is, is, um, really incredible. That's kind of what, um, I, I just discovered the filmmaker Roy Anderson has a website. Um, he's, God, is he, he's Scandinavian of some sort. Is he Swedish? He, he's in his late sixties and I really love his work. It's not super easy to 
get at, but he's still really making movies. He just won um, whatever the top prize at Venice, and you can you can look him up, and and there's a lot of stuff to look at online that's uh, really interesting. And are, is there a, a next unfamiliar form that you're attracted to? Like, I've never done this, and there's a charge around it somewhere on the horizon. <laughs> um, I, I kind of think from now on it's pretty much just all going to be permutations of other things. I'd, but new things get invented. I mean, apps didn't exist, you know. Um, Do you have a, before, a project so. that you're working on? Yeah, yes. Um, I... Well, I'm doing a few things. I'm, I'm working on a big public art project uh, that'll happen in London next year um, through an organization called Art Angel. And, and I have a new performance called New Society um, that's a very audience participatory performance that I'll be doing over the co- course of the year in, in a few cities. And I'm working on my next screenplay. Wow. Um, so, I mean... Or so I say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers, Miranda. Yeah, thank you so much. We're talking today to Miranda July about her debut novel, The First Bad Man. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.